Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Grab your Bible, turn to Genesis, the first chapter, Genesis 1, while you're turning there. Hey, happy 4th of July. Thank you guys for spending uh, part of your day with us. It just feels good to um, celebrate our nation's freedom after the last year, doesn't it? And um, just, I am very, very thankful, not only for the freedoms that I personally get to enjoy living in this country, but for the fact that I get to speak uh, week after week at our church and uh, preach the Word of God unapologetically. So enjoy your day when you get out of here. It looks like it's going to be a nice day. There's no fireworks in Grand Haven, are there? Did they cancel those? I don't know why. And my neighbors didn't get the memo either. They were already going off last night. So, so I think they're going to be there even if they weren't planned. But uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Um, if you're here visiting, even if you've attended for a while, here's something that I would tell you um, about the church that you find yourself in this morning. We're kind of a weird place. Have you guys noticed that? It's weird to come to church every week and not know who's going to be speaking. Wouldn't you agree? It's just kind of weird. Like most churches aren't that way. If you've gotten used to it, you don't even know how weird we are. And um, there's a couple of reasons that we do that. One of those is from the beginning of the church, we believed in multiple voices, multiple preachers, because the star every morning should not be the messenger but the message, Right? And we hold the word of God in high authority, and whoever's speaking um, is really unimportant to what is being taught. And then the second reason that we do that is so that we can develop young pastors. One of the joys of being a pastor here and being in ministry here is pouring into young guys, seeing them develop their teaching gifts, their preaching gifts, their character, and then actually seeing those guys uh, go and minister at other places. You know, the, the, the bittersweet part of what we do here is we take guys, we develop young preachers, and then we send them out. We send out our best. We send out our people sometimes with local plants. And um, Eric Klingel is an example of that up in Fremont. He's just killing it up there with Dan Cook. And we love those guys. And uh, just some good news, they're coming back and preaching here this summer. So we're excited for that. And if you've been praying for Fremont, um, they're doing a, a kind of a special announcement today. So I thought I'd trump them. Uh, they got a building. And they've been working on getting a building up there for several years. They've been renting some space. But they've actually got that building under contract now. And we're celebrating with them this morning. It's not only them. Just recently, Nate Buchanan, that's a young guy that did our 20s ministry. And he was saved in this church. He was trained in this church. We helped provide his schooling through Moody, and he's recently gone on. He's a campus pastor down in Florida, and we want to continue to be about developing young guys. So this summer, what you're going to see is you're going to see some of our young pastors rotating in and out of the pulpit at the different um, campuses, and I would encourage you, don't check out on these guys. These guys have been working in the background every week. We do a sermon planning meeting about 10 days before we preach, and these guys are in there helping us develop and outline our sermons, and those of us that are preaching more regularly, we're stealing their ideas every week. And it's about time they got credit for some of the things that they're bringing to the table. Uh, last night, I had the pleasure of listening to Adam Dollar. He's our junior high pastor. He taught at Spring Lake last night. He's teaching there this morning. Uh, listen to him online. He's good. Be a part of this vision that we have for developing young pastors. If one of these young guys um, is an encouragement to you throughout the summer, do me a favor, drop them a note. Just, just encourage them 
because one of the things that we're committed to is this idea of not just holding the gospel within our walls, but seeing men trained up and taking that gospel wherever their call might lead. Um, while they are doing that, I'm going to be spending some time this summer. I'm going to do a two-week series at both churches, and it's called Beginnings and Endings. I'm starting this this week, and I'm finishing it the next time I'm here, which is, I have no idea. It'll be soon, though. But this week, we're starting a two-part series. It's called Beginning and Endings. The big idea, if you're keeping notes, is simply this. When we lose sight of our foundation and our hope, the gospel gets lost in the middle. When we lose sight of our foundation, and our hope, the gospel gets lost in the middle. Sadly, as a church, I would just say what we believe, not just how we operate or how we conduct our Sunday services, but what we believe is becoming um, less common. It's becoming weird. In many people's eyes, it's becoming outdated. And I don't mean to communicate in any way that we're the only church in the area that is holding to a biblical view of the beginnings, Genesis, and Revelation. I'm just saying that it's becoming more rare. As the enemy um, looks at the gospel, they've, we consistently see the attack come at the beginnings and the ends in Genesis and Revelation. Let me illustrate this to you. Um, some of the details in my mind are sketchy because this is 15 years ago. And one of the things that I can't remember is how I got myself in this position. But it was long before um, I knew that I was going to be a pastor. I was a businessman living in the area. And I was invited to one of the local universities in Grand Rapids, a liberal arts school, to preach on the idea of literal creation. Now, I won't give you the name of the school, um, but it shares a name with one of my sons. That'll be enough of a hint, okay? And... Um, some of you are like, he's got a son named Aquinas. No, I don't. You're close. Just go a little east from there. And, and I was guest speaking in a class, and the class was um, a capstone class uh, in the biology department, in their science department. And I was asked to come in and give a defense for six-day literal creation. And I would just say in making my arguments, I wasn't like talking to the home team. I, I knew that my view would not be what was shared by most in the class, but I spent some time giving some evidences for a young earth, and the issue with an old earth in billions of billions of years is if you're going to believe that, you have to apply it across everything that we can observe in science. And there are certain things that if you go back billions of years that we can measure today like, like, we know that the sun is burning out, it's shrinking. We know that the earth is slowing in its rotation. We know that our magnetic poles are weakening. And if you go back billions and billions of years, some of this becomes um, difficult to fit into that theory. But more than the science, I was actually arguing from the grammar of Genesis 1. The idea that God is doing everything in his power in Genesis 1 to describe literal 24 hours days. He's going morning and evening. He's putting numbers with each day. Day one, day two, day three. And quite honestly, that word day in the Hebrew, it's yom, but it's very similar to our word day. And day can mean a 24-hour period or it can mean long stretches of time. I could argue that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player in his day. But if I argue that he was the greatest basketball player on his fourth day, that means something very different. So I was making a grammatical argument. I was bringing up some science issues. And at the end of my time, we opened the class up to question and answer. And that was the moment that I realized I brought a knife to a gunfight. 
And, and as the students started to ask me questions, the issue had nothing to do with how God created or how old the earth was. They were startled by my approach to Genesis. See, the, the consensus in the class was that Genesis was a narrative that had been created by Moses to give a nation of illiterate slaves an identity and to argue that their God was greater than the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan. In, in, in the class's perception of Genesis, they actually believe that rather than starting Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, you might as well have started it once upon a time. That, that Genesis was never intended to be taken as a literal account of history, let alone what I was trying to do to dissect the grammar of the first chapter. We didn't disagree about the origins of the earth or how our Creator created. We, we disagreed on what the Word of God was. And in that moment, it was, it was interesting, after the class was done, I went up and talked to the professor, and I was a little rattled, and I was like, I don't think that went exactly how you thought it was going to go. He's like, no, 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 that went exactly how I thought it was going to go. And I really appreciate you taking the time, because you did a wonderful job of preparing our students for the kind of people they're going to run into when they return back to their local churches. And I was like, that wasn't really cool. But in essence... What I realized at that time was there is a battle for the beginnings. There is a battle for how we view the story or the account of creation from the books of Genesis. This isn't just my opinion. It's interesting. The Bible addresses this directly. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3, Peter is writing and he's talking about what things are going to look like before the return of Christ. And he says this. He goes, know this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means, and, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. The, the enemy is going to attack the foundations and the hopes of our beliefs. And, and my fear is that when we punt on the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, what gets lost in the middle is the gospel. So this morning, I just want to take a minute and just kind of refresh. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. Just some of the major doctrines that we hold to as followers of Jesus Christ that are foundational for our church because many of them are found in the first five to seven chapters of the book of Genesis. There's going to be eight if you're keeping notes. Here's the first one, that there is a God and that God created our universe. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17 gives us more detail. In Colossians, it's not just speaking about God, but specifically Jesus Christ, his Son. And Colossians 1, 16 says this, For by him, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. These are important words. And for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This means that when we view our universe, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. It wasn't birthed out of randomness. All things are created through him and for him. And that the universe doesn't revolve just around us. It revolves around a central character, a central theme, the creator, that Jesus is the star of this universe. Not just that there's a creator God, but we find in Genesis 1 the idea that we're image bearers of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are not just the result of some random uh, chain of evolutionary events. That God created us, that there is a purpose, that we share his image, that we are distinct, that we aren't like the rest of the other animals. There is a sanctity and a dignity and a preciousness to human life because we are created in the image of God. Next verse, Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. In, in essence, what this verse is saying is, we're not the same. We're created male and female. They are distinct. They are different. We're not wired the same. Genetically, we're not the same. If you go down to our basic cell structure and the way that we operate, there is a difference. The choice of male and female, quite honestly, it's above our pay grade. It's something that God designs. You can disguise your gender, you can block your gender, and you can choose to identify however you choose. But science and God's word align on this. You cannot change your gender. And the sad thing is any attempt to homogenize gender, to make men and women exactly the same, in the process of trying to do that, you lose the distinction and the beauty of both what it means to be male or female. In Genesis 1.28, we see the establishment of work in this idea of Sabbath. It says in Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and get these last words, and subdue it. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And then in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, the idea of rest, that we have a Sabbath rest, that there is a rhythm, that we work and then we rest the same way God created and then he rested. So in all of this, we've got a foundation for work. It is not a drudgery. It is not something to be avoided that God basically created his creatures to be creative. In Genesis 2.24, a fifth thing, um, he gives a concept or a construct for marriage and sex. He says in, verse, in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 says, And he and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So right in the first couple chapters of Genesis 2, we've got that God is a creator, that we're image bearers, that um, he sets gender, the basis for work and Sabbath, and now we see a construct for marriage. One man, one woman becoming uh, united under the covenant of marriage. And in this covenant relationship that is then formed, sex can be enjoyed within those constraints without shame. Genesis 3, verse 1, we begin to see uh, the introduction of sin into creation and our need for redemption. 
Last week I was preaching at Spring Lake and we talked about the last of our tearing down strongholds being doubt and the serpent comes to Eve and says in Genesis 3.1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So again, doubt in God's word. Did God really say? And women, and, and I mean Eve will take of the fruit, Adam will eat, Eve will eat, and what we see is the minute that happens they begin to hide themselves from the presence of God. Now what we have in creation, it is broken we see the introduction of guilt and shame. Genesis 3.24, we learn that sin leads to separation. It says this, And God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So sin has now led to separation. We're told in Romans, just as God had promised Adam and Eve before they sinned, that sin would eventually lead to death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. G Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, establishes our need for redemption, our need for a Savior. To, to say it another way, if you don't believe in Adam and Eve, if you believe that Genesis is a fairy tale, why would you choose to believe in Jesus? Where is the need for a Savior? And Romans makes this argument. In Romans 5.15 it says, but the free gift, talking about our salvation through Christ, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, referring back to Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded in many. So, so Jesus takes the role in the New Testament of the second Adam, not falling to temptation, doing what Adam couldn't do, and redeeming us from the curse of Adam's sin by his perfect life, by God sending his son, by his death and then resurrection from the grave. If we did not fall with Adam, if we are not guilty because of Adam's sin, we cannot be redeemed in Christ. If there is no Adam, there is no need for a Savior. We also learn through Genesis 3 that now the world is cursed, it's broken, life is going to be difficult. Childbirth will be painful, there's going to be conflict and strife in the marriage relationship between husband and, life, and wife. Work will become toil, it will be hard. And then quickly, just a couple other things. The seventh point, we learn in Genesis 4, this is important, that there is a difference in how we live than the rest of the creation. Because we are created in God's image, we have the ability to make choices of our will, and we don't have to live just according to our feelings. In Genesis 4, verse 6, God is counseling Cain. Cain's offering hasn't been accepted, and he is uh, depressed, and he is angry. And God says this to Cain. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In essence, what God says here in Genesis 4 is we are called to live by what we know is right, by our will, not our feelings. And when we choose to do the right thing, when we choose to do obedience, that is a choice of the will and our feelings will follow. And too often we are inclined to let our feelings, what we feel like doing, be the determination of all of our activities. And God says, no, that's upside down. We have to live according to the choices of our will. At Harvest, since we started the church, we've had this definition of faith. Faith is believing the Word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel. 
because God promises a good result. And then just lastly for this morning, Genesis 6 and 7 and the idea of a flood. It's interesting, in Genesis 5, 5, it says this, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of 100% words. What, what God is saying is sin left unchecked, sin left undealt with is going to go to the least common denominator. It spins out of control. It keeps getting worse and worse to the point in verse 6 of Genesis 5. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then it says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here, here's something you need to know. Noah found favor and was considered a righteous man. Here's the truth. He was a righteous man because he found God's favor first. And I know there's different theories, and even in this room, there's different beliefs on what is meant in Genesis 7 when it talks about the flood. Was it a local flood? Was it a worldwide flood? Like, there's a lot of different opinions even held in this room. I just want to take you to the grammar of the text. You tell me what God's Word teaches. It says in Genesis 7, verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Sound local or worldwide? Let's keep going. Verse 22, Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living creature that is on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. If God wanted to describe what, it was, what a worldwide flood was, I think his language there is pretty direct. And some of you are saying, well, yeah, but you got to remember Moses didn't understand how the world was laid out, and he only knew this little area. Please don't miss this, though Moses is the author. This is God's Word, and this is fundamental to our faith. It says in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we consider this book and we look at the claims of this book, even in the first seven chapters of Genesis, we got to decide what this is first. Is it God's word or is it not? Can it be trusted? That's a decision that you have to make based off evidence or you can choose to reject it. That's your choice, but please don't miss this. That choice is important. Genesis 1 through 7 establishes many of the foundations of our faith. The beliefs and the opinions that we take out of Genesis 1 through 7 shape our worldview. And the early chapters of Genesis, I can't say it more directly than this, explain in detail our need for a Savior. But here's the truth where we find ourselves today in our culture and even within the walls of Christianity is the beginnings, these first seven chapters of Genesis are under attack. And, and that attack is coming from a worldview, a, a belief system that I'm just generally going to call naturalism. And let me explain what that means. I'm going to be talking point one, the religion of naturalism. 
Naturalism is the belief that every law and every force operating in the universe is natural rather than supernatural, moral, or spiritual. Naturalism is going to present itself like it is a scientific argument because it removes the, sci or the supernatural. It says we are the scientific viewpoint. But what I want to explain to you today is though it appears to be a scientific argument, at its core, it's not a scientific argument. It is actually a statement of religion. To deny the existence of God is every bit a faith statement as much as it is to admit that there is a God. And I would argue all day long, if you follow the science, if you follow the evidence, the science will not lead you to naturalism. Both statements, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, and the tenets of naturalism, the idea that nothing times nobody times time equal ever, equals everything, both of these are faith statements. And the reason that I say that is because we can't go back and, and observe how things got here, how things were originally formed. There are no witnesses. Creation or the Big Bang is not repeatable and it is not observable. And I would just argue this too, for science to declare that the earth is 13.8 billion years old, that's the common thought amongst evolutionists and naturalists, the idea that we're 13.8 billion years old. How long has science been around? Anybody got an idea? 5,000 years. So scientifically, you've got to consider the data that you can look at versus the amount of data that's available. If you look for 5,000 years and you look at and you study and you say, for 5,000 years we've been studying, and you extrapolate that back over 13.8 billion years, that would be like me having a conversation with a man who's 70 years old and talking to him for 15 minutes and then being like, see, I know everything about this guy's life. The, the sample size doesn't fit the argument, naturalism will offer you no answers to the basic questions of where did matter come from? Where did energy come from? Where did gravity come from? What caused the Big Bang? More importantly, how did life, self-consciousness, and reason evolve from organic matter? How, how did intelligence develop? The, the, the problems that underlie naturalism can be summed up in a couple different arguments. The first one is this idea of uniformitarianism. Everybody repeat that after me. Can you say uniformitarianism? That's a really fun, long word, isn't it? Here's what it basically means. It means that today's presence, the things that we can observe today are the keys to understanding the past, that what we can observe scientifically over the last 5,000 years, it is fair, it is reasonable to extrapolate that back 13.8 billion years. The founders or the fathers of uniformitarianism, if you want to study this, um, I wouldn't recommend you spend a ton of time there. It's a little dry. But the fathers of this are from the late 1700s, early 1800s, two guys by the name of Charles Lael and James Hutton. And it's interesting, following their work, a man came on the scene by the name of Charles Darwin. And Charles, look, Charles Darwin looked at this theory of uniformitarianism, that everything that we observe has always been and he made it the foundation of his theory for the origin of species. His argument was that if mountains can rise and fall, if they can be formed to sediment over millions and billions of years, 
would explain the geology that we see. It could also explain the vast amount of time that we would need to see species mutate. Again, let me just remind you 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Peter talking about what people will be, believe in the end times. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's a really, really great summary statement of what uniformitarianism believes. But the shocking thing is Peter wrote that 1,700 years before uniformitarianism became a recognized theory. The problems with the theory is our geology refutes it. British geologist Derek Anger said it this way. He said, the history of any part of the earth, like the life of a soldier, consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. If you look at our geology, it actually gives evidence that the earth was formed not through uh, long periods of time um, without interruptions. Catastrophes continue to interrupt the history of our planet. Just two examples. I'll give you one. Yellowstone. How many of you guys have been to Yellowstone? Okay. Yellowstone is interesting because it's got all that volcanic activity going on, right? It's interesting. They knew that there was volcanic activity for over a hundred years. They just couldn't figure out where it was coming from. They couldn't find the volcano. So there was this guy back in the 1960s by the name of Bob Christensen, and he was working with the U.S. Geology Society, and he was trying to figure out where the caldera or the cone was for the volcano that would explain all this activity in Yellowstone Park. So some buddies at NASA sent him some pictures that had just recently been taken from space and said, hey, maybe this will help you find the cone or the caldera of the volcano, and it did. It was more visible from space than he could see from ground, and the reason was the caldera or the cone of the volcano that is at Yellowstone measures 43 by 28 miles. Inside the caldera is over 2 million acres of land. It's a supervolcano. And it's interesting, uh, people that believe in a, a long earth and long ages, they would say that this volcano has erupted three times in the last two million years. It erupted 2.1 million years ago, it, it, it erupted 1.3 million years ago, and it erupted 630 million years ago. And if you follow the math, that means that it's a do. Okay? To give you an idea of what we're talking about here, let me put up this quote. Someone was trying to give you a, a perspective on the size of this volcano, and he said, imagine a pile of TNT the size of Rhode Island and reaching eight miles into the sky, and you have some idea of what visitors to Yellowstone are shuffling around on top of. He goes on and says, the Yellowstone eruption of two million years ago is thought to have put enough ash to bury the state of New York to a depth of 67 feet. It covered all or parts of 19 western states. These are catastrophes. These are catastrophic events that lay down layers that disrupt sediment, that create um, chaos on the earth. They believe that the sun was blotted out in the western part of the U.S. for decades due to these eruptions that they acknowledge, but yet when they date things, it's without interruption. According to the latest data from Yellowstone, in June of 2021, just last month, there were 445 tremors detected or earth, small earthquakes in Yellowstone Park. Anybody planning a trip there later this summer? 
Hey, good news. We'll talk about this next time I preach and finish this series. Uh, the world doesn't end with the Yellowstone eruption. I promise you that. God's in control. Secondly, just a, another little thing. If you study the fossil record, you'll learn about a lot of different animals. Some exist today. Some have, have long since become extinct. But here's the crazy thing about the fossil record, the fact that there is a fossil record. If I fall dead on this stage right now, do I become a fossil? You're like, we don't know. We're all going to leave early. But no, I, I don't become a fossil just because I die. To, to become a fossil, I have to be trapped quickly in sediment or in mud so that I'm preserved. The very fossil record that we have from around the world speaks to the fact that there were catastrophes globally that are in our Earth's history. The second thing I would point to is things Darwin could never understand, the complexity of design just in the human cell, how blood coagulates, how sight works, things beyond his comprehension as far as it relates to the detail, the intricacy of the design. Uh, George Johnson, in a book, Did Darwin Get It Right? Catholics and the Theory of Evolution, he said it this way. He said, we now know human DNA contains more organized information than the Encyclopedia Britannica. If the full text of an encyclopedia were to arrive in computer code from outer space, we would regard this as proof of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. But when seen in nature, it is explained as the working of random forces. Most evolutionary scientists, because of the crazy probabilities that go along with the complexities that we can observe, they've now adopted something to explain it. Not just 13.8 billion years. Most of them believe in multiple universes. The idea being that the probabilities are so low in our universe it would be almost impossible to believe. But if we believe in a large number of universes, maybe an infinite number of universes, probably all of these things would come together somewhere, right? Or so the logic goes. Sean Carroll, a Harvard MIT graduate and a professor right now at the California University of Technology, says this Extreme multi universe explanations are reminiscent of theological discussions. Indeed, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of this one, we do see is just as ad hoc as invoking an unseen creator. The multi-universe theory may be dressed up in scientific language, but in essence, it requires the same leap of faith. Whether you believe in a God of creation or whether you believe in evolution, just recognize that both of them are statements of faith, and they create very different and opposing worldviews. Ernest Mayer, an evolutionary biologist, said it this way, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we know to be a simple fact. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, writes it this way, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that. So the people that are arguing for the naturalist position... Not only would I argue that it's a statement of faith, but they're arguing just as strong and just as adamantly and trying to persuade just as strongly as we would hold our convictions about the gospel, about who Jesus Christ is, about our need for a Savior. But it's not that we're arguing beginnings. 
that, that, that's part of the problem. The deeper problem is not just the religion of naturalism, it's its implications. When naturalism is embraced, personal responsibility and guilt are removed. If, if there's no God, well, then it just proves out or, or logic would lead you to believe that there's no life after death, that there's no judge, that we're not accountable, that there is no absolute right or wrong. Each society decides what is right. And, and by the way, if we're just here because of random processes, it would also tell you that life is meaningless. And this is where I get concerned. When you begin to embrace the idea of naturalism, that we're all here without the existence of a creator God, life becomes meaningless very, very quickly. And quite honestly, it leads to a sense of hopelessness. Think back to that list that I had of the different um, beliefs that are established in the first seven chapters of Genesis. If, if there's no God, if we're not created in God's image, there is nothing that would make human life intrinsically valuable. Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, was quoted as saying this, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. See, see without believing in a creator that we're in God's image, sanctity and dignity of life is viewed differently. Without God, gender, work, marriage, sex are up to the interpretation of each culture to decide what is best, what is allowable, what is right. Naturalism leaves no space for the argument that we need a redeemer. Carl Sagan, who was famous 20, 30 years ago as a guy who had a show called The Cosmos, and he directed the movie called Twilight and was an evolutionary biologist and philosopher looking at the implications of evolution and naturalism. He said it this way, we live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up a universe which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. This is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. Take a moment and ponder that. What he's saying is our existence in the scope of the cosmos has no purpose, it has no meaning, it has no direction. Sagan will go on to write in a book he wrote late in his life called Pale Blue Dot. He says this, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. No need for a redeemer, no chance for hope coming from somewhere else. If there is no God, there's no judgment, no consequences for sin. I cannot make the logical argument to you if there is no God not to live by according to your feelings. Do whatever you think will make you happy without restraint. Why would you not? What would stop you? Other than maybe getting caught in some cases. Do whatever you can to chase happiness. Do whatever you can to chase whatever you think will mean joy in your life. 
And, and, and please, I don't mean to suggest, please don't hear me to say this, I don't mean to suggest that anyone who embraces the idea of naturalism now doesn't believe in the sanctity of human life and is just completely selfish. Quite to the contrary. A lot of time, it's the people that have embraced naturalists that are doing everything they can to save our planet. They're the ones trying to help their neighbor to be good. It's not that they follow it. Here's, here's what I'm saying. When they make these choices to be kind to their neighbor, to value human life, they're able to make those chases, but the foundations of why they're making those chases, those choices, if you go to the guts of what they believe, they're eroding. There's little foundation to support the moral, moral chases that they're willing to make. And here's the final thing. Why, why bother taking a Sunday and discussing all of this? Because at the end of the day, what's at stake is the gospel. I'm going to quote some naturalists here who, who deny God. Listen to what they say on the topic. Sir Julian Huxley, one of the uh, early kind of uh, guys studying the implications of Darwin's work, he said this, in the evolutionary system of thought, there is no longer need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created, it evolved. So did all the animals and the plants it inhabited, including our human selves, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. So did religion. Evolutionary man can no longer take refuge from his loneliness by creeping for shelter into the arms of a, di a divinity, a God, father figure, whom he himself has created. He just looks, he says, listen, if you're going to embrace evolution, there's absolutely no need for a God, and don't go running to something that doesn't exist. Atheist Richard Bosworth said it this way, and this is, listen to this, I know it's a little long, but hang with me. Christianity is and must be totally committed to the special creation as described in Genesis, and Christianity must fight with its full might, fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. It becomes clear now the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into the life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there to Christianity? None. What all this means is that Christianity cannot lose the Genesis account of creation like it could lose the doctrine of geocentrism and get along. The battle must be waged for Christianity is fighting for its very life. And here's the only thing that I would point out from that quote. Why is it that the atheists understand the importance of this fight and so often us as the followers of Jesus Christ don't focus on these issues? There's a battle being raged against the gospel and it is being raged against the claims that are made in Genesis 1 through 7. So, so what's the application? What's the implications of a message like this? Well, man, I've been preaching for like 12 weeks on tearing down strongholds and we've been getting pretty close to the heart, right? Please hear me. I don't want you to miss this. The goal is not to walk out of here all torqued up and angry at what our schools are teaching or, or, or are upset about what our culture is believing or the direction it is going. None of that should surprise you. We were warned about it 2,000 years ago. What they would believe, what they would embrace. Quite honestly, as it relates to our culture and those that are caught up that are believing this lie that there is no God, that there is nothing special about our creation, our heart should reach towards them with compassion because their worldview leads them to a place that lacks a lot of hope 
and we have the whole hope of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ as a contrast. This is not to engage our hearts to be hard towards our culture and our society. This should drive us to compassion for our neighbors because we, underneath, we understand the desperate need they have for the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Would you agree? My concern isn't for the culture. My concern is for the church because as this battle rages, more and more followers of Jesus Christ don't understand the importance of the foundations of what they believe. And we're seen in evangelicalism, in the church at large, adrift on these issues. And what's lost in the process is the gospel. And my prayer would be at harvest. We don't just believe that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, that he died for us and that he saved us. We understand the whys of why he did that. And the keys for that are found all the way back in Genesis. God created us. He designed us. We're created in his image. He loved us. He sent his son to forgive us for the sins and the consequences of our choices. And next time, one day he's coming back. Whether the world wants to acknowledge it or not, there is a day that is coming where Jesus Christ will step back into our atmosphere and he will say no more. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords will return. That is our hope. Don't get lost in this battle for the foundations. Understand not just what you believe, but why you believe it. And it's not going to be comfortable as we rub against culture on some of these issues. I get it. I get it. But just because it's not comfortable doesn't mean that we can back away, that we can shy away. Because when we choose to do that, when the church begins to look like the world and accept what it believes, the consequences, the gospel, and the hope of Jesus is lost in the middle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, Father, I thank you for this day, this time, this season in our country. And where so many would be concerned because the gospel seems to be losing ground, that it seems to be becoming unpopular, that it became, is, it's becoming under attack or controversial. What a wonderful time to have hope. What a wonderful time to be a light shining against a darkness. Father, teach us to view our neighbors and those who deny your existence with compassion. Teach us to live lives that others would look at and say they, they, they live by a different worldview. They, they, they believe different things. They have a joy that we don't know. They have a confidence that cannot be shaken. Let that be our testimony in this season. Father, we thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.